You can take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians 15, but Joe has drawn my eye now to the book of Job, chapter 40, and I am distracted. Um, my Bible is filled with notes through the book of Job, scribblings and underlines and circles and stars. It would take a key to understand the hieroglyphics of Job chapter 40 in my Bible. Um, but it makes sense to me. And while I'm sure there were a few minds wondering uh, why Joe read uh, 10 verses on the behemoth and stopped there, there is no great stopping point there, so we can give Joe a pass. He could have gone for another chapter. And then I'm sure the same people would be wondering why did he read for so long. So we'll, he can be forgiven for that. But the point that God is making to Job is clear in what Job did read. Job has already been humbled to that point. And he, he says in verse 4 of chapter 40, To God, behold, I am vile. What shall I answer to you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I've spoken, but I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. Twice, Job has already tried to make a response of some sorts to God and it has not deterred God from this display of his power and sovereignty. And Job, uh, like many of us have come to experience in our life, realizes that we have no complaint or accusation against God and that he can continue to open his mouth and say words of complaint or self-defense or accusation for the next 20 days and the Lord will not run out of responses to humble Job and he doesn't the Lord doesn't stop here and of course the part before he describes this creature the the behemoth which sounds like some you know dinosaur creature the part before that is the Lord answered Job out of a whirlwind and said, Now prepare yourself like a man. You know, that's not a phrase that I want to hear God say uh, to me. You know, if you, I don't know if that rings true for you, but I'd be okay if God never shows up in a whirlwind to me and says, Prepare yourself like a man. Like, what? <laughs> what does that even mean? What, how is a man supposed to prepare to meet God? I will question you and you shall answer me. Would you indeed annul my judgments? You have a complaint against me, Job? Would you condemn me so that you may be justified? That was Job's big mistake was, I haven't done anything to deserve this punishment. So in a way, what God is allowing to happen to me is wrong. And God is saying, would you condemn me so that you can say to other people, I haven't done anything wrong? Have you an arm like God or can you thunder with a voice like His? Then adorn yourself with majesty and splendor. You have to see Job in this moment, this boiled, covered, stripped down, bathed in ashes man. God says, then go adorn yourself in majesty and splendor. Array yourself with glory and beauty. What could Job have possibly done to himself to display glory on top of boils that are being scraped off of skin? And Disperse the rage of your wrath. Look on everyone who is proud and humble him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low. Tread down the wicked in their place, Job. Go ahead. Go make everything right in the world yourself, Job. Hide them in the dust together. Bind their faces in hidden darkness. And once you do all that, then I will confess to you that your own right hand can save you. When you have lifted up yourself in majesty and splendor and brought low all of the proud and dealt righteously with all of the wicked, when you're finished with all that, Job, then I will give an answer, a confession to you. 
Then I'll say that your righteousness can save you. That you can save yourself by the power of your right hand. And then he says, look now at the behemoth. And we read about this creature. And I think um, the point that God is making to Job is that Job cannot save himself. He can be brought low so easily. His whole life can fall apart. It's so fragile and he can do nothing about it. He is totally powerless against it. And his only salvation in this life or afterward is God. His only hope. And I think that applies to 1 Corinthians 15. We are reading about the resurrection of Jesus. I'll start reading in verse 12 and we will read through verse 28. And the subtitle in the New King James that I have in my translation is The Risen Christ, Our Hope. Which is the Christian's only hope for salvation. I think Job is applicable here. Paul says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. There's a parallel being made here that we're going to explore a little bit more today. Of the reality of death and the connection to sin. What Paul is saying, and this is ground we've covered, but Christ being risen and the eternal life that we hope in because Christ is risen is the same as being in your sin or forgiven of your sin. Sin equals death. Forgiveness in Christ Jesus equals life. And so it is nothing for Paul to say. You might expect verse 17 to read, And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, and you aren't going to rise from the dead either. You're as good as dead. But he doesn't say that. He says, If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. That's because those statements are synonymous. Being in your sins is being damned. Condemned. Death. Verse 18. Then also, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. They're dead. If there is no resurrection from the dead. They're not coming back to life. There is no pie in the sky, floating on clouds, spiritual residence for them. No, if there is no bodily resurrection from the dead, those who have died have truly perished. Gone. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. In other words, if my hope in Jesus Christ is in living my best life now, then I should be pitied more than anyone else on the planet. That's what Paul is saying. Why? Because Paul's life was not the best existence he could have garnered up for himself on this earth. And if he was throwing away the opportunity to live his best life now, because of hope in Jesus Christ and the resurrection from the dead, then he ought to be pitied because he's a fool. If there is no resurrection from the dead, 
he ought to be pitied because he's thrown away whatever chance he had at a decent life now in hopes of eternal life with the Lord. And then this is new ground for us in verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, Jesus' bodily resurrection is the first bodily resurrection and everyone who trusts in him will follow that initial harvest from the grave in bodily resurrection. For since by man came death, by man also came resurrection from the dead. How did death come by man? We know this from Genesis 3. Adam sinned. You can draw an equal sign between sin and death in the argument Paul is making here. Adam's sin equals death. Since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. And here is the importance of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The real bodily incarnation of Jesus. Born of a virgin. Walking the earth in a human body. Living, tempted in all ways yet without sin. This is the power because Jesus did what the first Adam could not do. He lived, he died without sin. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterwards those who are Christ at his coming. When will we experience bodily resurrection? At the return of Jesus Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. Jesus in the flesh will reign on the earth. Now I believe that is the millennial thousand year reign of Christ on the earth still to come at his return. There are other very good Christians who interpret that differently, but that's what I believe and you should know it. And it says, after he has reigned and put all enemies under his feet, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death itself. There will be no more sin at the conclusion of the kingdom of God. Heaven on earth will exist. There will be no more evil, no more sin, no more tears. No more bloodshed. There will be no more sin. And so there will be no more death. Verse 27. Now here is an argument for the Trinitarian plan of God in what Jesus has done. Jesus in the flesh has not replaced the person of God, the Father, or the Holy Spirit. But what is accomplished in Christ is accomplished by the design and under the authority of the Godhead. And Paul is making that argument. Paul feels it's necessary to say that here. Lest they be run away with some false doctrine. Verse 27, for he has put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are put under him, again, he being God the Father has put all things under the feet of Christ. It is evident that he who put all things under him, the Father who put all things under him, is accepted. In other words, he doesn't take some submit, God the Father doesn't take some submissive role to Christ. It says, now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him that God may be all in all. This is an argument for the Trinitarian work of God in Christ. And we'll pause there. Now, we could go in a lot of different directions with this text. We could talk about eschatology and the return of the Lord and the millennial kingdom. And we could go and we could talk about the Trinity and the relationship between God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We could talk about heaven. And we have talked about each of these things in the past and we will talk about them in the future. Some of those things we'll talk about yet in chapter 15. But... 
two weeks ago when I preached last, we vacated 1 Corinthians 15 and we looked at the life of David briefly in the destruction of Goliath because what I want to do is tie the victory of Jesus and the hope we have in the resurrection of Jesus to how we are called to live. And the other spiritual, mature, intellectual work that needs to be done around eschatology and the Trinity is important, but I am mostly concerned with this morning, anyway, that you understand the importance of living a life of faith in Jesus Christ. Because I think that is the argument Paul is centered on in the fullness of 1 Corinthians 15. Now, I began last week by reading from Psalm chapter 16. And I just want to read a couple of verses from the section that I read last week. Now, this is David writing. And in Psalm 16, he writes... I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons, the dark seasons of life. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. Now, he is talking about death when he says that. He's not talking about going to sleep at night. When he says, when David writes in Psalm 16, Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices, my flesh will rest in hope. He is talking about his confidence of what will happen when he dies. My flesh will rest in hope. And he's saying his flesh will rest in hope because... Of what he said in verses 7 and 8. And what he said in verse 7 and 8. I will bless the Lord who's given me counsel. God will instruct my life on how to live. And I will bless him as he gives me instruction on how to live my life. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. In the darkest times of my life. My heart, which I assume from what David has written here, is filled with the Word of God and the instruction, the counsel of God. I have, um, you have written your Word on my heart that I might not sin against you. So when he says, my heart instructs me, I'm assuming it's connected to the Lord's instruction. He's saying, I will get through the dark seasons of my life based on what I believe and know about God in my heart to be true. And he calls this instruction. When I feel like my life is off the rails and not where it should be, and it is hopeless and I am desperate, when enemies have surrounded me, when I can't find hope, what I know about God from having His Word written on my heart will teach me in those moments. And I will endure. I have set the Lord always before me. Think about that. This is not the only way this is emphasized to us in the scripture. But it's powerful in and of itself. I have decided that the worship, the service that I owe to Yahweh God will always be my goal and destination in whatever I'm doing. I have set the Lord always before me. The Philistines are not before me. The Lord is before me. That's David, you know. These dark times in my family, many of which I brought upon myself. These obstacles and depressions and challenges that David is facing are not before me. The Lord is before me. I, I think this is what David is saying. I do not have to figure out all of the stuff that is on all of the paths and all of the roads in front of me. I have to wake up each day and serve the Lord. 
I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, then I shall not be moved. That's the idea. Why do we set the Lord? Because if God is with me, I will not be moved. What does that mean? No one will defeat me. No one will hinder my plans. No one will ever throw a wrench into what I'm trying to do. My loved ones won't die. I won't deal with dark times. That's not what it means. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. And the question is, moved from where? Moved from the path that he has set me on. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. In other words, I can accomplish what God has called me to do if God is with me. This is David in Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear... For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Your presence is here. I will not be moved off the path that you have me on. My faith will not be broken. I will not be shaken. I will not be ultimately defeated. Therefore, because of those verses 7 and 8, because I bless the Lord and acknowledge his instruction in my life because he leads me through dark times because I have set the Lord always before me because the Lord is with me therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices and my flesh also will rest in hope David sees the cause of his dying with hope as a life lived in service by faith to God. Because of the life by faith that I live to God, therefore my flesh will rest in hope. Can you see what he's saying? And following, verse 10. We know he's talking about resurrection. Verse 10. For you, God, you will not leave my soul in Sheol. You will not abandon me to the grave. Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. And in Acts chapter 2, this expression of faith by David is applied to the bodily resurrection of Jesus. What does that mean? David's hope, hundreds of years before the incarnation the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus was in the same resurrection that Jesus would accomplish for us. How does a young man go out onto a battlefield to fight a giant in armor? How does that happen? Are we to believe that David was, you know, unsullied by any doubt or fear? He was emotionless in the whole thing? It doesn't tell us what David felt, but it tells us how David acted. And he believed that there was not Goliath in front of him. He believed that the Lord was with him and before him, and he was unwilling to let this giant, threaten, mock, and ridicule the living God, unconfronted and unchallenged. He was not afraid of death, of dying hopelessly. He believed in a resurrection. He believed God was with him. If you think of that in terms of Job, Goliath is nothing compared to the behemoth or the leviathan. God was with him. Now today I want to bring your attention to another few guys. Leave 1 Corinthians or if you turn there Psalm turn to Daniel chapter 3. We will not read the whole chapter because it would take the whole time. We're just going to look at a small section. But in Daniel chapter 3, I want you to see the same thing. Because I believe you will see it over and over again in the scriptures. 
if you're looking for it. Now, in Daniel 3, the people of God have been destroyed by the Babylonians. Jerusalem, this is after David, Jerusalem has been razed to the ground. There's not a stone standing on top of it or you know, the wall is completely disassembled. That's what we find out later on. There is no temple in Daniel chapter 3. I don't just mean in Daniel 3. There is no temple on the earth. There are no priests. There are no daily sacrifices. The people of Israel have been defeated by the Babylonians and it seems for all the world that the God of Israel has also been defeated by the Babylonians. What is a God without a people? What, you know, in the, in the polytheistic ideology of the ancient times, the, the God of Israel had been conquered. No one, no one should worship him. He has no more people. He has no places. And it's in that context that a number of Hebrews from the royal court were taken hostage and indoctrinated into the ways of the Babylonian sages. We know one very familiar, Daniel to us, who rises to great things in the Babylonian Empire and that carries on into the very early parts of the Persian Empire. But there were other people as well, companions of Daniel, by the Babylonian names Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and these are just three guys who also went through the same training. Who'd also been given various responsibilities. But they worship a God that, again, has been defeated. There is no earthly advantage to them in worshiping this God. So, if you want to think in 1 Corinthians 15 terms, you would look at these guys and say, they are of all people most to be pitied. All the advantage earthly in the world would seem to be in serving the Babylonian gods. These young Hebrew Israelite young men have been given a precious opportunity rather than be destroyed and enslaved like all of the other Israelites by the Babylonians. These choice young men have been given the opportunity among a select few to be indoctrinated and, and trained and prepared for ruling positions in the Babylonian Empire. The greatest empire in the world at the time. Under Nebuchadnezzar the Great. Their lives should be destined to poverty and ruin and whatever they had the Israelites enslaved doing throughout the Babylonian Empire. But these precious few of all the millions of Israeli young men, these precious few had been given a rare opportunity to live royally. And it says in chapter 3 that Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits. He makes a great big idol. And he sets it up in a plane. Not on a plane, in a plane. And he decides he is going to unify his burgeoning empire in worship. In other words... My empire of all these conquered people will be unified and do better if we all worship the same God. So he builds this God, this idol, this statue. And look at who he calls. It says in verse 2, And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers. The Listen, it's the rulers. He didn't call... A hundred million citizens of the Babylonian Empire to this plane. He called all the rulers. And like all of them. Major and minor rulers. To this massive plane. Because if he can unite all the rulers. All the governors. All the judges in worship. Then they will disperse that all across the empire. This is a show of devotion, a show of unity, a show of spiritual surrender. It 
So the satraps, the administrators, verse 3, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. There are probably thousands of people in this crowd. I think of like the formal shows of the communist dictatorships of places like North Korea when they forcibly assemble all the leaders to witness the demonstrations of their military or of their leaders or of their, I think of that. Then a herald cried aloud. You know Nebuchadnezzar's there and a herald stands up and he speaks to all of the assembled folks. To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery in symphony with all kinds of music, they had prepared a tremendous orchestra. It's going to be a real... You ever? We don't do this at our church. But have you ever heard someone preaching a sermon like I'm doing now and all of a sudden the piano starts to gently play in the background. Yeah, we've never done that. I'm not condemning it. I'm simply saying it always seems weird to me. I'm like, when did the piano show up? Where'd that, you know, where, like, <laughs> I don't know if they just make the guy sit there the whole time or wherever, but I'm like, wow. And how did he know to start playing right then? There's been some coordination. Nathan, when I read this phrase, start tinkling away on the... I don't know, but it's that he, why? Because that brings emotion to, I mean, maybe not for you, but that's the idea behind it. So they've got the big orchestra for this worship thing lined up. And it says, when you hear that, you are going to fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Now this is kind of an interesting historical footnote for you. But there is a common theme with these great leaders of massive empires in ancient times that eventually they convert worship to themselves. By the way, we're told the Antichrist will do something very similar in the end times. But Alexander the Great had all of his men at one point before he died worship him as a god. You know, you read about the Caesars and how it wasn't enough that they have their gods, but the Caesar himself was eventually elevated to a place of worship himself. This is a common ancient thing, and this is Nebuchadnezzar's version of that. God's going to deal with Nebuchadnezzar in the chapters to come. But here it says, so at that time, all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, symphony, and all kinds of music, and all the people's nations, languages fell down and worshipped the gold image because of the threat in verse 6. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Now, to construct this thing, it would make sense that they had a massive industry laid out in this plane because... There's no point in constructing all this stuff long way away and bringing it there. This was a major operation. And so he must have thought someone might object because he issues the threat right at the outset, right? He must have thought, you know, I'm asking people, I'm commanding them to convert their religion, basically. And it stands to reason some people might not want to do that. They might have an objection. So let's just heat the furnaces up really hot and we'll make it clear at the outset this is not optional. We're going to head off all the complaints. Like there's not going to be any objection. So they did it. And then of course the, it all happened and they start to worship except for three guys. And there are so many people assembled that you know, they don't even stand out immediately to Nebuchadnezzar, but they pass word. Word gets to Nebuchadnezzar. Hey, three of these people you've assembled aren't doing what you told them to do. If we have to surrender our religious values, if we have to bow down and worship, what about these three guys? Now, Nebuchadnezzar knew these guys, by the way. They were not strangers to him. I'd imagine out of all the thousands of people assembled there, there were a lot of strangers to Nebuchadnezzar. People who ruled in parts of his empire that he did not know. But after the events of Daniel chapter 1, we find that Nebuchadnezzar had made Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego rulers in his own province of Babylon. These are guys he knew who had stood before him. 
which I imagine humiliated Nebuchadnezzar of all the people who would have a problem with this and who would <laughs> rebel against the king's command. Three of his own guys? <laughs> it says in verse 13, Then Nebuchadnezzar in a rage and fury gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image that I have set up? He doesn't give him a chance to answer. Now if you are ready, in other words, he assumes that having brought them forward to confront them, they are immediately repentant. Now, if you are ready, at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, and lyre, psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, then good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? And we see what this is really about, isn't it? It's about the subjugation of all other deity under this unified rule of Nebuchadnezzar. And here's how the young guys respond. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king. Now their response is funny and their response is strong and it's courageous. But I want you to pay attention to what they say here. The details matter. This is what they say to him. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Now, it would seem they had a lot of need to answer. But that what they're saying is, we're, we don't have a legal, we're not going to make a legal case here. We're not going to try to reason with you or explain anything to you. We don't need to. This test is very clear. It's a test of whether or not you are stronger than our God. And we are so devoted to our God, we don't even need to answer you in this. We only need to answer Him. If this is about where our allegiance lies, we don't have any need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, if you throw us into the fiery furnace... Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. What an expression of faith. And you say, man, how did they know God was going to do that? They didn't. They hoped. But they didn't. Look at the next verse. But if not... <laughs> If these are the last words that we ever say, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. <laughs> and then, of course, verse 19, Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury. <laughs> and he throws him in, and, and the people who throw him into the furnace die because of the fury of Nebuchadnezzar. And it says in verse 24, Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and he rose in haste and spoke to his counselors, Did we not cast three men into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king, look, he, he answered, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Now, every Bible commentary will tell you that the Son of God could also be translated one of the sons of God. And they'll make a point to tell you Nebuchadnezzar is not attesting to the person of Jesus. He's simply saying the fourth one in the furnace is supernatural. It does not look like the other three. It's a man, but it... But is there any reason for us not to recognize God in the flesh? Maybe it was an angel in human form, I don't know. But I have my own thoughts on the matter. The kind of faith that Paul is calling us to, and the reason why the resurrection is important in 1 Corinthians 15, is because this is a kind of faith, 
in the resurrection that transforms the way that you live. And that's really important for you to see here. And you can see it all through the scriptures. It is not merely a faith that hopes to go to heaven someday. Or a faith that lets you not feel bad about the death of loved ones. The, the right kind of faith in the resurrection fuels a lifestyle that is not focused on temporarily getting as much as you can from this world. Or enjoying yourself as much as you can in this world. Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, if we want to talk about what victory in Jesus is, Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 says, Everyone who competes for a prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it in order to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. In other words, Paul sees himself in competition to obtain an eternal crown. And then he says, Therefore I run like I do. Therefore I live the life that I live. Paul explaining why he lives a life to where if there is no resurrection from the dead, he is the most pitiable of all men. Why do I live this life? Why do I deal with being stoned? And why do I travel around? And why don't I, I, I take a wife on my journey like, like uh, Peter does? And why don't I have the church financially support everything? I, why do I live the way that I do? He tells us, I run like this, not with uncertainty. This is how I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and I bring it into subjection lest when I have preached to others I myself should become disqualified. He sees every part of his life as living to obtain an imperishable crown at the resurrection. That's what he sees. And in 1 Corinthians 9, he sees a long road ahead of him. But then if you were to turn to 2 Timothy 4... Paul is writing, 1 Corinthians is probably the first letter we have from Paul that he wrote chronologically. 2 Timothy is the last letter and now he knows he's going to die. And now he's not talking about his life in terms of fighting to obtain a prize. He's not still working towards the victory. He sees it as completing itself. And in verse 6 he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. At the beginning in 1 Corinthians, first missionary journey days, it's I fight this way and I run this way. And at the end, it's I have fought this way and I have run this way. It's almost over. And he says, finally, verse 8 of, of 2 Timothy 4, finally, decades of doing this. Decades of this life. Finally there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness with the, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. The day of his return. The day of Paul's resurrection, I should say. The day of judgment. And not to me only, but also all who loved his appearing. What is victory to Paul? It's not... Getting a great job or raising a family. It's not doing something athletically or artistically. It's not being comfortable. For Paul, victory is defined as running this race of his life, fighting this fight throughout his life, and making it all the way to the finish line so that he can say, and finally, there is as I finish, there is a crown laid up for me. There is the imperishable crown. There is the eternal reward there. And I have finished. I have done well. <laughs> what is a victory for you? What does victory look like for you? I jotted down four buckets, some notes. And I think we have a lot of people that this first one falls in, but... I think for a lot of us, victory is simply staying with the spouse that we've got, raising the kids that we've got, having a job and a home and a simple life and maybe taking some vacations or seeing the kids do some things and maybe having grandkids one day. And if we can just live that kind of life, victory. That is not victory in Jesus. There are all kinds of people who have a life like that who could care less about Jesus, whose lives are not fueled by devotion to Jesus, who don't serve Jesus. That is not victory in Jesus. Now, I'm not condemning 
having a wife or kids or going on vacation or enjoying them doing things. Or I'm not condemning a simple life. I'm saying that is not victory. Losers can live a life like that. And losers, I say, in a theological way, which is the only way that will ultimately matter. Those who lose their life for eternity can have that life. Others accomplishing goals is victory for them. I plan out. I set myself. I achieve. Other, it's gaining rewards or objects. I've got that thing that I want. I have that thing. Someday I'd like to have this. Someday I'd like to have that. I want to get this. Some, someday before I die, it'd be nice to have this. Some people, that thing is just the retirement account. Others, it's, you know, the car they've always wanted, the house they've always wanted, the vacation home they've always wanted, whatever it is. It's about victory is gaining things or objects. And for others, it's not about things or objects at all. Victory is gaining the respect, the approval of others around me. Peers, people, fans, followers, family members, moms, dads, husband, wife, kids, whatever relationship you want to throw in there, victory is about earning their respect. None of those things require Jesus. The people in the scriptures often do not experience earthly victory. In fact, you would be hard-pressed to find those even who you think would have earthly victory in the conditions that they are in. Abraham died a stranger in a foreign land. Moses did not make it into the promised land. Elijah did not see the people repent. David did not build the temple and watched his family fall apart. Victory in Jesus is about your best life later. Not now. That's why Paul says, if there is no resurrection from the dead, we are most to be pitied. How do you achieve this? Well, this is where we finish. I'm going to read to you a couple of verses from Romans 12. Now, this is on the heels of the Hall of Faith uh, the Hall of Fame, the Hebrews 11. Okay, but so this is Hebrews 12. This is on the heels of Hebrews 11 where it talks about all those Old Testament heroes who did all these great things by faith. By the way, there's a section in there while it's talking about Abraham, while it's talking about Moses. But, but it's talking about all the heroes. There's a section in Hebrews 11 that says this. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they may obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trials of mockings and scourgings. Yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, were slain with the sword, they wandered about in sheepskin and goatskin, being destitute, poor, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. That's where faith in Jesus got all of those people. But in chapter 12, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnare us, ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, who for the joy that was set before him went to the cross and died. That is not your best life now. That is your best life later. Jesus was obedient to the point of death. Why? For the joy that was set before him. And if the joy of eternal life with God, if the joy of being with the Lord, if the joy of being a citizen of God's kingdom forever is not real to you, you will not sacrifice joy in other things in order to serve him. But the joy of serving 
the Lord Jesus, of knowing the Lord Jesus, of resurrection from the dead with the Lord Jesus was enough for David before he knew the name Jesus. It was enough for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It was enough for the people of Hebrews chapter 11. It was enough for Paul. It really is all that we have. And I love this. Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. All the time, I'll, I'll leave you with a basketball analogy. All the time, you know, I see little fifth graders who I'm coaching. They'll get a steal and they'll go dribbling down the court as fast as they can. And it's the open court. Some of you experience this. And I'll watch the abject dread as they near the basket of realizing the steal was great and it's great to dribble out in front of everybody. But if you miss this wide open layup, you didn't do it. You know, no one's going to clap. You know, you're laughing. You, you know what I'm talking about, don't you, Angel? Yeah, it's like, oh man, I stole the ball. I'm going down the floor as fast as I can. Things are going great. And do you know what you hear? This is what I say from the sideline as they're dribbling down. The, finish, <laughs> you know, finish the shot. You know, great play. Finish the play. Make the layup, right? Because if you blow the layup and the other team gets the ball, it's as if it never happened. <laughs> no good came from them at all. Which is a silly thing to say and you can use the analogy for anything whether it's a fight where you just withdraw at the 11th round or a race that you bow out of at the last mile, whatever it is. You can use it for anything. It doesn't matter unless you finish. Jesus finished. How did he finish? Well, he set aside every weight and sin which ensnares and for the joy that was set before him he finished what the Lord had called him to do. He finished what God had called him to do. He finished a self-appointed task. He was submissive. He endured the cross. There is victory to be had and reward to be had. And you can't do it if your life is filled with unrepentant sin. Sin is death. And you can't do it if there is no joy at the other side of this world for you. If the hope in that is not real, you can't, you can't do it. Think about that as we press on in 1 Corinthians 15. Let's close with the word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word and for your people who have been so patient to me in enduring a, you know, another long sermon. And I pray, Father, that for those who are here, that there will be some blessing and some peace of this that will fuel righteous living before you, that we'll walk away determined not to be knocked off course by sin and also not to be deterred by fear of death and to see the joy of your coming and our resurrection as where eternity and eternal joy and satisfaction and peace should truly be found. Help us not to take ultimate peace in whatever experiences we have in this world. But for the joy that's before us to run a race with endurance so that we might say as Paul, I have finished the race. I have fought the good fight. And as my life is being poured out, I know that I have an inheritance. Let there be no doubt in our minds. Let's live with such zeal and emotion, Father. Empower us to be people who serve you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Bless these tithes and offerings that we give now. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.